Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Three, Risk Analysis. Chapter 29. I was lucky to be alive. The experts that looked into the incident said it again and again. It had to be true because they were the experts. It did, nonetheless, take them a long while to piece together the probable chain of events based on my later testimony and computer records garnered from the ship and the pilot. I myself didn't learn about most of it for years. It seems that when I pulled out the cable from my companion's faceless head, his hardware had been handling part of the star jump calculations. The ship itself didn't have the kind of navigation equipment needed for extended travel, but apparently he did. The mid-flight course became corrupted as a result, and the tiny ship tried to compensate, feeding its best guess to the engine. The free-jump engine didn't know what to do with that garbled nonsense, so it did what any starship engine tends to do in such a case. Whatever the heck it wanted. Forensic research on the hyperdimensional physics of misjumps is still fairly primitive, despite what those self-same experts might tell you, with the results often open to interpretation. Different investigators will, more times than not, come to different conclusions. Throw in a new type of star-jump engine, and the exact cause could well remain unknowable. Theories, opinions, guesses, hunches, they were everywhere for a while. In the end, all that really mattered was what happened, not why. We re-entered the real universe out in deep space, two light years from the nearest location touched by people. This was an automated mining and manufacturing facility in a nondescript star system containing a cheap little orange dwarf, some iron-rich asteroids, dusty ice, and icy dust. It had traffic satellites, though, to aid ships picking up refined and unrefined materials from the robotic complex. It was the gravity sensors upon these that picked up the ship's jump wake. This discharge, as Shady Lady had learned the hard way, was bizarre. It fell into the unknown category, which usually implied an emergency situation. The satellite network automatically dispatched a small courier jump drone to the nearest fleet rescue port in Murrieta system, 13 light years away. Tremendous distances, sure, but in terms of time, within the real universe, it was just... Half a second for the graviton wash, milliseconds of satellite assessment, 
minutes of drone preparation out at the Lonely Star System's jump point. Pop, gone. Pop, arrive at a fleet base. Transmission of the bizarre Graviton data upon a priority accident channel. Not even a half hour would have passed before emergency responders well over a hundred trillion kilometers away learned that we had tumbled back into reality in the middle of nowhere and were in dire need of help. Murrieta is fairly near the border, but over 70 light years to anti-spinward from where Shady Lady originally prowled into corporate space. This misjump, therefore, turned out to have covered almost 90 light years distance, start to finish, all in one go. This made it 30 light years beyond the galactic record at that time for a controlled star jump. Though as misjumps went, far worse it happened. We also arrived in real space a full 5.27 seconds before we left, meaning I was in two places at once for a while. It explained the second vessel that Chris and I had been so puzzled by when Jaybird had been destroyed. There hadn't been two ships at all, just one with a fancy new star drive that had failed spectacularly. The jump tug brought us back to its home base, where I sat in a brig, waiting for things to happen. Which they did, and quickly, once the fleeties started filing reports. Floyd and I started off immediately, along with the three. Gaza made to follow, but I told her to go and call for TAC Ops to meet us at 75J, and then to stay clear. The urgency in our bearing was argument enough to get her to agree. Jake, having noticed the agitation and raised voices, wandered out into the big space behind us. What kind of trouble are you causing now, DeSantos? He shouted. I hooked a thumb over my shoulder as I walked while looking at the three. Would you please shoot that man? Oh, everyone here would love to, she confessed, showing a tart smile and the first signs of humanity beyond bumbling confusion. Along the way, we stopped at the team sentries posted by the door to Gendis, which was near the companionway to the storerooms. There were three of them, but they weren't going to leave their post. Floy stated firmly that there was an intruder. I shouted a lot and waved my arms like a mental patient. The three in our tow, name of Staphras, I heard her tell Floy as we walked, sort of shrugged at them, looking sheepish. They called to an unseen supervisor who, in turn, had just heard that TAC Ops was being scrambled. The Gendis guards were given the okay for two of them to follow and lend assistance. Sir, three staffers asked, are you saying that someone else entered Starroom 75J? Have you been asleep? I demanded, but Floyd motioned me to shut up. An industrial spy, she answered the woman. Girl, really, she couldn't have been more than 19. We jogged down a narrow companionway in the outer reaches of R&D. This was a shortcut of sorts over to the vast warehouse section. He's trying to steal tech, one of the other guards threw in. What do you think industrial spy means, I demanded, slowing to a fast walk. I was winded again. They looked irritated over this, so I pointed ahead. Three staffers and the other two dashed off. Just secure the door, 
Floyd shouted after them. Wait for tech ops! There were team and civilian technicians in the companionway, going about their business. But our haste and my yelling was drawing alarmed stares. The name of tactical operations was a lightning rod. Two more soldiers met up with us along the way, barreling out from a side hatch. They'd been dispatched by some interior duty station by their own officer in charge. They were tasked with escorting Floy and me and seeing to our safety. These guards had slug-thrower rifles with them, in addition to the same stunner sidearms that the others had been carrying. I recognized the rifles as standard-issue Panthers. I'd owned a couple of those myself once. Stole them, really? These were newer models and more advanced. Sleeker, lower profile, and bearing some electronic sighting doodads on the top and sides. When we rounded a corner, the four of us came out onto the main companionway leading to the larger warehouse spaces for R&D. This was more like a very wide avenue. It had two lanes for back-and-forth traffic. You could have driven cargo rollers through here, two abreast, and still had room left over to stand and gawk. It was how they'd been able to move the prototype to its storage space to begin with. The only people on the road now were workers in jumpsuits who looked shocked to see armed guards moving down the road with earnestness. 75J dead-ended the avenue, the largest storeroom in the section. Like a few others I'd seen along the way, it had a huge roll-gate-type security door. Outside of its size, it didn't look much different from the others, but I'd been assured that it was as tough as a bunker. The storeroom possessed a smaller personnel door off to one side. The three and the other two were waiting there. From a distance, everything looked secure, but as we approached, I could tell that the security mechanism on the small door was damaged. A plastic ident pad on the wall was missing its cover, and the mechanism inside looked flash-burned, like a welding torch had kissed it. It's broken. It won't unlock, the three said. The big gate either. How did he get in then? Floyd wondered aloud. He must have done this after he used my ident to open it up, I said. Keeps people from following. It also keeps them trapped, one of the rifle guards observed with satisfaction. There are no other exits. Then he made a new one, I replied. This man is smart. He wouldn't box himself in. Young Staffris called to report what was found, and she received instructions to stand by and wait for reinforcements. I doubted Dieter was going to get himself into a firefight, but I'd learned prudence in my time here and didn't mind the wait, which, as it turned out, was only momentary. Two personnel roller vans came screaming down the avenue behind us, illuminated logos flashing. With a skidding of tires, it came to a fast stop. Team Tac Ops troopers, the like of which I'd seen on the day Brandon was shot, jumped out and ran over. They all wore dark, powered armor. Back behind the vans, one of them shouted in an amplified, metallic voice, waving us out of the way. Move, move, move! All seven of us, including Floyd and I, who probably outranked them, hopped to obey these people. 
At Spoke Plaza, I'd been preoccupied and hadn't had a real chance to study these soldiers. They were big in their armor. Giants, really. At least two and a quarter meters tall and a meter wide at the chest. These suits were fully enclosed exoskeletal environments, loaded with sensors and a wide range of augmentations, covered in advanced polynium ceramitite protective plates and articulated by powerful magnetic servos, they made their wearers resistant to, yet fully capable of inflicting, terrific damage. The entire unit seemed like huge metal shadows, flat black in color, toting slug-thrower pistols as big as the Panthers. One of them carried a different weapon, though, a stubby cylinder that extended a bit in the soldier's hand as I watched. It was a char-pack, a charged particle gun that could punch or cut through reinforced targets as easily as armor-piercing ordnance. These were usually backpack-style weapons, but apparently the handshake had been able to miniaturize them. The soldiers moved lithely, quickly, and with surprising quiescence. They fanned out on both sides of the smaller door, weapons at the ready. I remember thinking that if Dieter was itching for a fight, he was about to have one, and it was going to be short. I stumbled back with the others and squatted on the access ramp at the rear of one of the vans. I was next to Floy, and both of us peeked out. There was a finger count of one, two, three among the giants. Then the one nearest the small door grasped the ring handle and attempted to open it. It didn't budge, though there was a squeaking sound. The figure shook its metallic head and just moved back. The one with the char pack stepped forward and fired. There was a flash and a clang, and the little door wobbled like it was made of rubber though it didn't fall off. That was flatly amazing. The soldier fired again, and then again. Flash, clang, flash, clang, and I had to look away for a moment. Glancing back, I saw that the little door was smoking, warped and glowing cherry red in the center. Unbelievably, it still stood in its frame. In seeming frustration, the soldier with the big gun rushed forward and slammed a powerful foot against the hot door. A weakened top hinge gave way, and the barrier finally fell in at an angle. The room beyond looked black. The heavy weapons specialist stepped away, while the first one, doubtlessly a squad leader, moved back in place next to the door. From the side of the figure's helmet, he or she extracted a thin, wire-like camera filament, carefully feeding it through the open doorway. The figure just stood there, as the fully articulated, semi-robotic camera line extended into the storeroom like a snake. Inside, it would have been moving up and down, back and forth, in and out of nooks and crannies, while relaying a live feed to the soldier, all of his or her colleagues, and the commanding officers across the station. Such cameras were typically multi-spectrum capable and could provide a fairly comprehensive look at hostile close-quarter environments. It went on for a long time, this study and assessment, 
with not one of the giant shadows moving so much as a centimeter or making a single sound that I could hear. Eventually, the lead figure stepped back from the door, having retracted the camera as quickly and quietly as it had been deployed. They must have seen something in there, because they visibly readied themselves for action. The doorway was only big enough for one to pass through at a time, and even then, they'd have to hunch and step carefully. This represented a choke point, should anything bad happen, and blasting down the door had robbed them of surprise. Half-crouching, they gripped weapons tightly, watching for the go signal. As a group, they looked like a networked weapon system all their own. In a way, I guess they were. More than the fact that each was a walking tank, the thing that made them so formidable was that they didn't take unnecessary chances. Corporate tack ops was renowned throughout settled space. Watching them up close like this, I could see why. With another silent finger count, they dashed in, alternating sides, one after the other, their movements synchronized like a dance routine. There were ten of them, and they were in the storeroom in seconds, choke points and low clearance be hanged, ready to fight, apprehend, or kill any hostiles inside. Two heartbeats later, the lights in the companionway flickered with an electrical buzz and went out. The avenue was pitch black. Then some emergency lights came up slowly. These were overhead chemical lamps that threw a dim yellowish light, just enough to see by. A few cautionary signs, showing directions and listing safety procedures in a power outage, faded in too. They used the same technology, shining slightly brighter than did the overheads. They could glow on their own for years, but were dank and sad-seeming after the previous brightness. All the team members, Floy included, looked at the glowing lamps in confusion. Calms down, Staffress muttered behind, playing with a collar mic on her uniform. I was getting a network loss alert in my eye view, too. I tapped the comm ring, to no effect. If power's out, life support might be as well, Floy announced, turning to the others. Find the nearest emergency locker and suit up, everyone. Do it now. We're not getting any notices, ma'am, the young three argued. It's what she did best, I could see. Primary, secondary, and tertiary lighting systems all just died. Chemiluminescent lamps are the final backups when all redundancies fail. We have a total power loss on our hands. Get those suits on and stop wasting time. The glowing signs pointed to some emergency lockers up the way. The team Johnnies from Gendis found one and handed out flat-packed pressure suits to each of us. These were not full exosuits. Like the thin, flexible ones on Shady Lady, these were light, unpowered garments with no controls. They had been designed to save the lives of people with even no vacuum survival training whatsoever. Once sealed, onboard tanks would open and provide self-pressurized air for up to 12 hours, while passive filters lining the inside collar scrubbed out CO2. The suits were somewhat insulative, allowing for a moderate amount of thermal protection. Brain-dead simple, they were generally enough to get people to safety. 
No one on this station was without training, of course. Indeed, a life lived in space meant going through endless emergency drills, and we were all in our suits within two minutes flat. Because the air still seemed good, I opted not to seal the inflatable bubble helmet just yet. The others did the same. I didn't hear an explosion that might have damaged station systems, I commented, looking back at the storeroom. That had to be a folding EMP. A what? Floyeen asked. A very particular type of electromagnetic pulse. I had looked into such things in the past, in both the professional tech journals and upon the more lunatic fringes of the commercial gunnery boards that I sometimes haunted. A folding EMR generator, or folder as it was known, could be made small enough to install within the very restricted real estate of civvy missiles. The idea with the folder was that if you got the missile close, you could disable even a large, well-armed vessel without damaging anything nearby. A high kill potential with low collateral potential, in other words. That's how military and police forces use them in crowded space lanes, anyway. I'd actually been offered the chance to buy one once from this shady guy I met at a defense spech conference on Powder Station. He really knew his stuff and wasn't asking all that much for it, but looked like an addict nearing rock bottom. Where he got the device, I don't know. Frankly, I don't even know if he actually had one, since all he ever showed me were some still images. Folders are considered mass-effect weapons, and are, therefore, illegal in private hands. The only ones you can find for civilian-class weapon systems are scratch-built. The QC of back-alley ordnance is not high, as a rule, and I really had no reason to own one outside of the cool factor, so I took a pass on the deal, but only after researching it. Couldn't be an EMR burst, one of the rifle guys stated doubtfully. He then pulled back his left sleeve and showed us the time and date glowing from a subdermal display on his wrist. This wouldn't be working. A folding pulse is ring-shaped and highly localized, I explained. It can penetrate most shielding, but the wave pattern flies out unfocused before coalescing and running to the edge of its range. It then collapses on itself and rolls back, repeating the pattern and oscillating for several milliseconds. The area immediately around the device would have seen no effect, but any other electronics in the storeroom will be stone dead now. At our range, the effect would have been less severe. This comring is shot, while my retinals and bone cons are fine, so my bioelectric field was enough to protect them. Now, look back the way we came. Down there and to the left? Is it me, or are the lights in the connecting companionway still on? They looked where I pointed. Three, Floyd ordered Staphorus. Run back until you find a comm unit that works and call this in. We need backup. Yes, ma'am, the girl acknowledged and dashed off. The guards with the Panthers were checking their weapons. All my sensor and targeting add-ons are dead, one of these guys announced, and his partner nodded. We can still point and shoot, though. That's good, the senior of the other guards admitted bitterly, holding up his sidearm. Because these stunners are junk now. Floyeen stepped to the open doorway of the storeroom and waved the riflers to follow suit. 
I, in turn, trailed them. The other two looked like they felt useless, but brought up the rear anyway. The storeroom provided nothing but silence and pitch blackness. Tech Ops! Sound off! Nothing. She called again and got the same result. I moved up to the door. Let me look, I whispered. My retinals were good ones. They possessed both infrared and light amplification filters as add-on features. Ultraviolet, too, though that was more of a ground-pounders feature. You couldn't get much use out of it under artificial light. The retinals were full orbital style, covering my eyeballs entirely in a clear protective casing. They were, of course, linked to the matching bone-conducting speaker mics implanted in my jaw. This all might sound invasive, but getting them installed took less than an hour's time at a tech boutique on Tyree. The implants worked best when paired with an outside communication or computational device like a wrist comp or a comm ring, but they had some functionality of their own even now. Lidamp would not be very effective in this circumstance, so I opted for infrared. I subvocalized the startup phrase, then waited a moment for in-eye confirmation that the filter was active and ready. The midnight room became alive with watery reds and yellows. I disliked using wavelength filters because they tended to cause eye strain, but it was either risk a headache or trip over stuff in the dark. I told them what I was doing, then leaned in, eyes wide open. The storeroom was big. When Gaza had first shown me the place, I was very impressed that so much area had been turned over to a single stowed item, however significant. The greatest irony of living and traveling in infinite space is that you never seem to have enough of it for your stuff. But there was Cageless, standing in the center of the storeroom on its three spindly legs. It didn't look like much of a ship, really, and was certainly smaller than most vessels that could lay claim to that classification. Maybe four meters across and only six and a half tall, not including the landing gear, it was shaped like a squat, slightly tapering triangular box. It had no windows, and the legs were non-retractable ending in round, unremarkable footpads, like serving platters. These struts raised the vehicle off the deck by about a meter and a half. The entrance hatch was on the bottom, forcing the pilot to scramble under the hull to enter or exit. Though pressurized within during its test run, Gaz had explained, there was no room for an airlock in Cageless, and the pilot had worn a pressure suit at all times, just in case. At the moment, the hatch was unsealed. I could see it hanging down underneath, round and nearly touching the metal deck. That was a change from the last time I was here. What is it? Floy asked. I was only a few steps in by this point, and she could see me plainly from the door. Someone's been at the prototype. I don't see the tack-ups, people. Wait. Okay, there they are, over to the left. Are they hurt? They're not moving. Two are on the floor. The rest are standing in, um, odd poses. Oh, yeah, that's powered armor they're wearing. 
Crap, that's right, she hissed. If the pulse breached their shielding, those suits are completely dead. Can they breathe okay? I whispered over my shoulder. One of the guards standing at the open doorway said quietly, They should be able to. The suits have passive backups. They must be unconscious then, I observed after a moment more. No shouts or anything. SOP for power loss is to stay silent if you're in an active threat environment, the guy explained. Drawing the enemy's attention is very bad when you can't move or defend yourself. That made sense. Just as it made sense to set up a booby trap like this one, if TAC ops might be the first people through the door. I turned to the guard who had spoken. Were there any glow sticks in the emergency locker? Find some. We need light in here. He moved away, conferring with the Gendis guys. I'm going inside, I told Floy, but she shook her head and placed an arresting hand on my arm. We have to wait. You aren't armed and we can't see, so we can't even cover you. He'll get away, I complained. This is the only door. When I didn't reply, she added, Or we'll catch him later. He can't get off the station. I placed a hand over hers, which was still on my arm, gave it a reassuring squeeze, and then removed it gently. Ejok! She followed for a few steps, but stopped when I must have disappeared from view. I walked slowly, trying to see around the free jump's bulk, in case Shady Lady's engineer was hiding behind it. My range of view with the IR filter wasn't that great, though, and it was all black back there. Dieter? I called out. I stood still, waiting for a reply, but there wasn't one. Can we talk about this? Still nothing. I stepped to the closest armored soldier, who was lying on the deck. The head was turned away, but he or she wouldn't have been able to see me anyway in the dark. Not in a dead suit. I knocked on the helmet. Who? Who is it? Came a thickly muffled voice. A man's. I leaned in close and spoke sharply. Are you okay? Yeah, came his reply. Suit lost power. <laughs> I noticed. I'm going to drag you out. I proceeded to try, but it was a mighty prospect. This armor turned people into dense blocks of metal. After a few serious heaves that threatened my lower back, which was still sore from all the furniture shifting in R&D, I had to give it up. Stay cool, I called to the soldier inside. Help is on the way. Hoping that wasn't a lie, I moved from one to the other of the immobile warriors, saying the same thing. I actually knocked one of the standing figures right over when I stood on tiptoes to yell through the helmet. He or she just pitched forward, and I heard a cottony scream from within. I shouted at the featureless head, and a faint voice assured me there were no injuries, but what the flux was I trying to do? That was a very good question. Floyd had heard the noise and called to see if I was all right. Yeah, just clumsy. I can't move these guys, they're too heavy. Is there a way to open the suits? Yeah, but we'll need light. 
She turned away then and shouted at the two that had gone looking for the glow sticks to hurry it up. Too antsy to stay still, I moved in further, going right up to one leg of the ship. I thought I heard some faint clunking ahead, but couldn't see anyone. I called out to Dieter again, with the same result. Those movement noises continued, though. He was there, all right, somewhere. Sure, I could see in the dark, but not well, and I didn't know what to do if I actually did find him. Crossing to a bulkhead, I proceeded to circle the vast room, looking for a new door. I walked slowly and carefully, avoiding an empty rack on the wall and some boxes on the floor. At the rear of the ship, that is to say the part facing away from the storeroom door, because the vessel looked the same from every angle, I came across a large maintenance kit upon the deck. It was wide open. Miscellaneous parts and small hand tools were scattered around, and some were under the hull. A few oddly cut scraps of dark fabric were there too, crumpled in a pile. Cables ran from portable diagnostic machines sitting on one side to some long-term status recorders upon a narrow stand. A tall, barrel-like structure against the bulkhead had a thick hose leading from it to a place on the deck just underneath a round coupling in the hull of the vessel, like it had only recently been detached. I didn't know what any of this was for. Probably it was all custom equipment, original relics as much as the ship itself. There wasn't anyone not frozen in metal within my reddish, watery gaze, so I kept moving. Within a few minutes, I'd circumnavigated the entire storeroom. Help and or lighting sure was taking its sweet time in coming. I called back to the door. What's the delay? I don't know, Floyeen replied, sounding tense. I think an alarm is sounding down the road, but it's not close. Hold on, here are the glow sticks. They bustled a bit at the doorway, then several points of brightness jiggled alive. Being military-grade, the plastic devices were throwing a lot of illumination. Floy tossed a few inside, so that the place was no longer a complete cave. Then she and the two with the rifles moved in slowly, each holding another stick. I joined them and gestured to the immobile tac-ops soldiers. There's a latch on the front, Floy said when we came to the nearest guy. It works when there's no power. Here. One of the guards stood over the metal giant while Floyeen fumbled for the tiny lever. After a bit, she found it, and there was a click and hiss as the armor's upper and lower halves parted at the waist. Between all of us, we got the legs pulled off, and the soldier within squirmed out, looking undignified but relieved. What hit me? EMP, I said. The suit is completely hardened, he stated firmly. Tell it to your friends, I replied and pointed to them. He and the two guards proceeded to help his comrades, while Floy and I studied the silent ship, as solid and immobile as the armored warriors. I heard movement before, I stated quietly. 
I'm sure of it. Where? That I'm not sure about. But I went all around the room. There's no other way out of here. Except... The realization hit me just a single second before Cageless's pre-flight warm-up sequence kicked on with a grinding hum. The ship had exterior lighting, and it flashed on then with small, powerful lamps that dazzled us all. The others behind called out, but the engine was really loud and getting louder. I don't know what they said. I'd never heard a ship starting up from the outside, of course. That was something that only ever happened in vacuum. It set my teeth on edge. It rattled my internal organs. The whine grew so loud and so high in pitch that I actually had to cover my ears. After a few moments, the pain faded as the noise rose higher yet beyond human hearing. Then the deck shuddered under our feet as the warm-up was superseded by the vessel's reactor power plant routine clicking into main ready mode. It burst on with an overwhelming roar, and I fell down. MRM was a power plant's normal status when the ship was in motion, as opposed to the trickle of energy it converted when parked, as with Shady Lady out on the hull. Floy was still upright somehow, even through the noise and vibration. She pulled at my shoulder, lifting and steadying me until I was able to climb back to my feet. Cageless had small maneuvering thrusters, but no large reaction drive. In its one and only experimental jump, it had been transported out to the proper orbit by a cargo tug, which set it free to run the test. Another such tug on the other side of the star system had picked it up again. It couldn't fly away, therefore, nor were there even bay doors in this room that opened on the vac. But a free jump didn't need doors. Both rifle guards had their panthers to their shoulders and were shooting. I could see the weapons blinking fire, but the noise drowned out any sound. It was a waste of ammo. Soldiers guarding doors would only have ship-rated anti-personnel rounds in the clips. Such bullets were specifically designed to deform against, instead of blow through, any hard targets to minimize the risk of hull damage or blowout events. Even the thin polinium plating of the prototype was more than a match for those things, but they fired on anyway because it was all they had. There were now two TACOP soldiers up and about, both of them working at freeing their fellows. I grabbed Floyeen's hand, and the two of us retreated, stumbling. Floy smacked the two riflemen off the backs of their heads and pointed to those soldiers still trapped. The vibration in the deck was severe, and it hurt my knees and ankles. I fell again, going to all fours. From down there, I could see that the hatch underneath Cageless was now closed. I crawled toward the farthest of the statues. It was one of those still standing. The vibration caused the soldier to topple over before I got there, but face first with the emergency hatch underneath. I knew I couldn't flip the figure over. One of its hands had been extended forward a bit when the armor froze, and the giant wasn't lying completely flat. I shoved my own hand under as far as I could, squeezing it between metal armor and metal decking. I pushed hard and felt my glove snag on something. 
I couldn't reach any further, though I tried. The noise was hammering, numbing, and the vibration rattled elbows, hips, spine, and skull. It was hard to even see, because there were bright flashes in my eye view, like I was being struck on the head repeatedly. And then there was a small tab under my forefinger, and I flipped it. I couldn't hear any click or hiss of equalizing air, but the waist of the giant popped apart then and kept moving as the soldier inside pushed with her legs. I wanted to help, but I was fighting to free my hand. The eye flashes were now bright and fast, energy bleed over from cageless dancing on the electronics of my retinals. It was dizzying, and I tried to shade my eyes with my free hand for all the good it could possibly do. I wasn't trying to get free anymore. I couldn't see. I couldn't move. And then suddenly I could, because two soldiers from the other suits were lifting at the Hulk, helping to extract their teammate. How could they see anything right now, let alone stand? But the armor shifted, and I slid out my arm. Other hands lifted me up, but the power plant roar spiked for a moment in an overload check, the last automatic self-test before a jump engine could show green. And I went blind. Pain lanced through my eye sockets. I screamed unheard in the chaos and jerked out of the helping hands. In a second, the overload check was completed, and it was back to mere sparkles and noise and confusion. There was a low, discordant shriek under the roar of the power plant now, and it was growing. With a stab of terror, I realized I didn't know how big the Free Jump's trans-dimensional bubble would be. Normal commercial ships using normal star drives had bubble radii that extended out from the hull. This was the furthest point in the artificial universe, created and maintained by a ship's jump engine. But the bubbles were formed here first, before transition, otherwise a ship would slip from our dimension over to one where nothing, where less than nothing, not even the laws of physics existed. Without a pocket universe in place beforehand, matter, energy, time, space, and any hope for survival simply ceased to be. A couple hundred meters was considered a healthy safety margin, therefore, in case of any transition errors. If Cageless was set to form a similar radius, Mylag Vernier would be ripped apart from the inside out. We had to get away. We had to run. But running was impossible. Just getting to my feet took everything I had. The soldier from that last set of useless armor was out of it now, but she'd gotten hurt in the process and was limping. The rest of them were moving toward the door, including the rifle guards. The limping woman was even less steady on her feet than I, and in her attempt at haste, almost fell. Floy, ahead of me, was able to catch the soldier up under the arm and keep her moving. We stumbled on, the shriek that I couldn't identify before now rising precipitously. I thought my eardrums would pop. It had to be the free jump engine winding up. It hurt so much and flashes in my eyes were getting so bright again that I tumbled head over heels on one of the discarded metal torsos directly in the way. 
I screamed in confusion and terror and pain, and no one heard me. I wasn't going to make it. Maybe none of us were going to make it. Through the dance of lights, I saw Floy and the other woman just passing through the doorway. The seven handed her burden off to one of the others, then turned back for me. She had thought I was right behind, but I was across the deck, flat on my butt, stunned and tortured by the mad howl, and half-blinded by fireworks only I could see. I sealed the bubble helmet of my cheap emergency suit. The piercing whine of the prototype engine became a surge. I looked through clear plastic into my girlfriend's horrified eyes. The universe and everything I knew, my life, my thoughts, it all fell into a single point, collapsing away from reality, from experience, from life and death, Hope and certainty, down, down into the pit of my stomach. And Cageless Star Jumped, taking me with it. You have been listening to Risk Analysis, a science fiction novel written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can contact me at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. You can also check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com and sign up for my newsletter, where you'll find exclusive content and early releases. This story is copyright 2016 by the author and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called i by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The theme for Risk Analysis is called The Inventor by Zach Beaver and is available on SoundCloud.com. Risk Analysis is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person, living or dead, nor any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care.